This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, Felice Noel Rodriguez. She's a visiting professor at Ateneo di Zamboanga University in the Philippines. Now, uh, that's uh, a word that took me forever to pronounce. Um, <laughs> and I finally managed to master the correct way to sort of like pronounce it this year. And it's... all thanks to sort of like uh, <laughs> Noel's help. Uh, so it's, it's Zamboanga, right? Zamboanga. Yes, it's in the southwestern tip of the peninsula of Zamboanga Mm -hmm. in uh, Mindanao. But I always say to Malaysians Mm -hmm. that it's right north of Sabah. That actually sort of like helps us like position, like locate it in the geography. Yeah, exactly. can you tell us a bit more about Zamboanga? I mean, I don't think it's familiar to uh, many Malaysians, uh, but you know, if we know anything of it, it has come to us as the Latin city of sort of Asia, right? Yes, Latin city, uh, precisely because we speak a language, a Creole language called Chavacano, mm-hmm. which is uh, really for Spanish speaker would seem very familiar because okay. of the words. The infinitive words are, are Spanish, except with the R, ending R. And But the basic sentence structure is uh, Visayan, also okay. a, a language in the Philippines. And so it's very easy to learn compared to Spanish because the sentence structure, the conjugation of the words don't matter. So okay. we just use the infinitive of the word. Ah. So the verbs, for example, like eat, which is comer in Spanish, you say come, which is eat, yeah. and you just say, I eat today, I eat tomorrow. So you don't conjugate the word to make it past tense or present tense, or it's just the infinitive. Mm. So someone listening, uh, a Spanish speaker who is listening to Chabacano would find it both intimately familiar and strange at the same time. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. So how does this language? How did this language sort of like come about? What makes? Uh, how how did it sort of like emerge in a place like Zamboanga? Well, you see, Zamboanga in the southernmost tip of the Zamboanga Peninsula in Mindanao, southwestern part, was really the frontier town of the Spaniards. Mm. They built a fort, and um, the fort was used as a buffer zone to actually stop the raiding that was going on from different parts of Mindanao, especially from the Sulu zone, well, Mm. from Maguindanao, Sultanate, and also from the Sulu zone upwards towards the Spanish colonized areas in the Visayas and and Luzon. Mm -hmm. And so they built the fort to counter that. And so, you see, a city emerged precisely from the fort. Mm -hmm. And you have soldiers coming in from different parts of the Philippines. For example, they bring in not only Spaniards, but they bring in like a thousand Visayan soldiers, for example. And and so they, they, they stay on. Or uh, you also have the population of the people who were actually enslaved okay. uh, by the people of, uh, by the Samal Balanini or the Taosugs from the, from the southern part. Mm-hmm. And some of them escaped and 
others were redeemed and they stayed on, but they couldn't be repatriated back to their own countries mm. or to their own cities right. because th- those cities or those towns would have no been, there. yeah, would, would no longer be there. And so there was no place to go to. There was no home to go to. Uh-huh. So they would remain. That, uh, the soldiers, the Spaniards, and then you also have the local people. I mean, people who were there way before the Spaniards came, who were the Subanan mm-hmm. or the Lutau people or the Bajaos or the Kali, what they call the mix of both, which is the Kalibugan. Mm-hmm. And so you have people from different you know, backgrounds, different ethnic groups coming together. And the language that they would communicate with each other would be supposedly Spanish, right. but because uh, it isn't like an educated type of, of Spanish, you just pick out words uh, one and and later on, you know, through time, you have people starting speaking this, this, it emerged right, right. really as a language of its own. Mm. You know, it's, it, it's something so dynamic, right? Yeah. It's not something, you know, imposed on them, but rather something that grew from it. Mm. So it's a language almost like uh, it's almost like Bazaar Malay in a sense that it's a language that came out of the necessities of community for for you know people who traded to communicate with each other or to have some form of transaction with each other and to 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 find a way to sort of like you know bridge that divide. Yeah, uh, this language just organically sort of like came through a process uh, a process of searching for. A means to even understand each other on some level, right? That's a wonderful thing. Organic, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's so dynamic, it's so alive, you know, and and I think that's 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 the beauty of of the language mm. and of the culture itself. So it's even used, I mean, in TV, radio, uh, literature. Mm. So it's not even mere dialect because some people would say oh it's just a dialect no it's not even a dialect it has emerged to because of the literature that is involved it has come to be a language of its own own. yeah and you come from Zamboanga yourself you grew up in Zamboanga did you learn how to speak the language since you, you were young Yes. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> Everybody yeah. speaks, Everyone speaks yes, the language. Yes, That's yes. the main lingua franca. Yes, uh-huh. yes, yes. Though yeah. in school, of course, educational system was in English. Mm-hmm. And we had also Filipino as a subject. And actually, growing up, we were banned from speaking Chavacano in school. Okay. They would say, oh, you're not allowed to use that in school. You would get fined. Mm-hmm. But it was later, I think, the mayor... Actually, I think it was a policy to say, no, it's something that should be celebrated right. because it's a language. It's our language. Yeah. You know, it's something that is uh, so different from anyone else. Yeah. So I we think shouldn't that is, erase that. Yeah. I think that's quite relatable to many different contexts in Southeast Asia where mm. when the, we all went through a time where they were trying to discipline the language. You know? <laughs> uh, uh, and so you have yeah. like fines if, you, if you're not able to sort of like speak proper Malay. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, even yeah. Chinese, like yeah. all of us cannot speak. Uh, I, mean, I went to a Chinese school, we can't speak. Be Hokkien or Cantonese, or you'd be really? fine like 50 cents. Oh, really? <laughs> we're caught speaking in Cantonese and you have to speak only Mandarin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's very akin to, for example, in Malacca, mm-hmm. the Kristang, mm-hmm. for example, which is exactly that. Okay. So I, but with them, it's Portuguese, right. right? And you don't know how it came to be. Right. I mean, it's not Portuguese. Yeah. It's not. You know, Malay, it's not, but it has emerged as a language of its own, except that there, 
I think um, there's a move to to retain it, mm-hmm. but that unlike in Zamboanga, wherein the entire town speaks it, right. it's on the TV stations, it's right. a newspaper, it's uh, their short stories written. Right, it's not going to go extinct anytime soon, is it? <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. So, how did you sort of like come to uh, you know study Zamboanga, or, or how do you begin to be interested in Zamboanga as a as a topic of your research. I understand that as a historian, your formative year has been sort of like spent trying to uh, undertake research in war history. Am I right? Or war, war studies. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. war studies. Uh, war studies. Which is <laughs> quite a different sort of like topic and subject from thinking about, you know, a city or an urban sort of like, you know, the cultural sort of like uh, sediments. Uh, that one can find within a particular site or locale. How did that shift sort of like come about? Actually, both are related mm. in the sense that it is born out of a personal experience. So growing up, my house was right near or across the general hospital because my grandfather was the director of the Philippine General Hospital from the 1920s. So... Uh, during the war years, when Basilan, which is another uh, island right off the peninsula of Zamboanga, was uh, undergoing some sieges and wars, and uh, they would fly in the dead bodies oh. or those that needed, you know, medical help uh, into helicopters and come into the the hospital, which okay. was right across mine, and so I would. You know, as children, you would run to look at at what was happening. And so all this, you see war, right? right. And you see um, there were refugees also right beside the empty lot beside our house. And um, you begin to question why, what is happening, mm. and where did it all start? And so those questions remained. And then you have the fort and a big structure which was important in daily life. Right. I mean, it is right there. Right. It's monumental enough yeah. that it defines the and, and urban also, scape, is it? There is uh, an altar that's there of Our Lady of the Pillar. So it's a Catholic, like it has emer- it has become like a church now, actually. Okay. But anyway, we celebrate the feast of Our Lady of the, the Pillar every October 12. So it's a big thing. And yet nobody... Nobody explained to me then, like, why it was. And so there were always questions. Mm. And the questions were not answered then. And so when I was growing up, I I wanted to know why. Mm. And so when I was in college, there was this uh, person who came to the, to our classroom and asked, you know, anybody interested in history? We're beginning the history program again. And this was in Ateneo. the Ateneo de Manila okay. University where I was studying college uh-huh. and I was in communications and not in Oh, okay. <laughs> but you were I was studying to be a journalist. Yeah. Okay, right. <laughs> but I was interested in, in, in history, in these uh-huh. questions. And I said, probably this would be the venue that would help me answer the questions that I had. So wait, help me understand this. So um, Michael Schumacher was not teaching history by then? Or uh, like, Father or... John Schumacher was... Uh, uh, um, or he was teaching in another department? In another, what you call, uh, school. Okay. It w- He wasn't part of the history department okay. of the Ateneo de Manila University. And so they had to set up this new history program. And so, um, and 
there was this well-known historian also, Father De La Costa. But by then, I don't know, there was... The program was dead. Okay, okay. And they were trying to revive it. I see, okay. And so when I came in, I said, yes, I want to come in. But still, they didn't have that program. So I couldn't even get into a program because there was no program. So uh, what I did was actually take interdisciplinary studies. Okay. So uh, I'm a graduate of the Interdisciplinary yeah. Studies uh, program so of Ateneo that, de Manila. What does that entail? A bit of literature, a bit of... Uh... You choose, yeah. Okay. yeah. So I did history, I did anthropology, and that's where my um, also uh, interest in mythology came in. Mm. I took up mythology. So my undergrad thesis was actually on the mythic image of Marcos. Ah, okay. As like the f- <laughs> first male and female of the Philippines. Like and not the only first, that, right. as how he projected himself uh-huh. as a, a god. So looking into, he knew how to get into the Philippine psyche. Right. So oh, There's that famous painting of him. and uh, That was part of it. Emerging from the bamboo, right? As far <laughs> yes. as the, the, the mythology. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, okay. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's how it all started. I mean, uh-huh. my, my interest in history, okay. in warfare, right. in Zamboanga. Uh-huh. I mean, it's all connected. But that interest also comes from a training that is very interdisciplinary uh, in a sense that I guess anthropology would provide you with skill sets that uh, someone who actually only did history would not actually have certain sensitivity towards. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about how all these things then sort of like come together as the perfect storm, right? For you to then <laughs> sort of go on and work, you know, warfare studies. <laughs> actually, my master's thesis was on Zamwanga. Mm-hmm. And then uh, for my PhD, that's when uh, warfare came okay. in. So I looked into Philippine forms of warfare in the 17th century, contact period with Spain, because I really wanted to look at how do we look at things now from the perspective of the the colonized, right? Mm-hmm. Because we don't have a voice. The voice is that of the the colonizer. Mm-hmm. They so tell un- the story. So unlike here where we have hikayat and, exactly. and all our sort of chronicles, yes. uh, there are no such written form of like... Uh, we have the epics yep, okay. of the uh, the different ethnic groups. Yeah. But, that, but these are oral cultures? Or? Oral cultures, okay, right. yes. Okay. But, for example, when the Spaniards came to the Philippines and they colonized, of course, all the, the stories of how they came, how they colonized. And so you have Magellan, since mm-hmm. we're celebrating a 500 years. <laughs> no, it is not a celebration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is a, rem, uh, a remembering of the encounter and what the encounter brought. But it is not a celebration. celebration right? But anyway, so I want always to look at so who were we? Mm. How did we look at the encounter? And so with the fighting, for example, with the Spaniards, I tried to look at how the native culture looked at the encounter. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was to look at the dictionaries. Mm. So Spanish Tagalog, Tagalog Spanish dictionaries that were written by the missionaries in the 17th century to try to look, extract words that had to do with violence, with war, with weapons. 
with concepts that relate to to that and also of course peacemaking right and so uh, from there i try to reconstruct the story using these terms these words to try to bring out a picture but from the other okay. from the other perspective yeah. I've always wanted to sort of ask you, I mean, uh, what's the format of the dictionary back then? Was it also also sort of one-to-one sort of like word translation? Or did it have also annotations that came with the dictionary that might include, I don't know, stories or, uh, or expanded sort of like concepts that would allow you to even sort of like capture certain agency, right? Or a native agency within this sort of like very violent sort of like form of contact. There would be mm-hmm. word to word, but the words would also be used in sentences. Mm. So they would give examples. Okay. And it's very rich and you can, I mean, go beyond just looking at uh, warfare. But that was my yeah. dissertation. So I had to look at that. But interesting, you have, for example, uh, words that related to gold. Mm. I mean, there's not only one word for gold. Ginto, there were like, you know, a long list of different types of of gold, and there would be one fourth of this type of gold, or one eighth, one sixteenth. I mean, it's so rich, mm. and it was so telling of the culture that that that's there. Yeah. Mm. What role does imagination play in all of this? Imagination, and yet an imagination that is rooted in the the, the text, of, the text itself. And, okay. Because it's not just the dictionaries, mm-hmm. it's not just the chronicles of the Spaniards, mm-hmm. it also is the sermons that were used by the missionaries mm. to explain concepts. They use the language of the people mm-hmm. in bringing in Christianity, for example, to the people. And from there, you can see certain local concepts because instead of the missionary of the the native getting and going out it is the missionary getting into the culture of the the native uh, wow. a beautiful example would yeah. be for example the explanation of who is this Jesus Christ yeah. for example right i mean He's supposed to be a god. How do you explain that concept to the local people? Mm. And he says, oh, you should treat him the way you treat your datu. Mm. And then he comes in to explain the datu. And and so there you you see that in Philippine culture, there was this concept of a headman, like a datu, the ruler, Mm -hmm. and what the datu did. Mm. So those things were very, like, uh, interesting. Let's take a break. Uh, you're listening to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin and Simon Soon. And this week, we're joined by Feliz Noel Rodriguez, visiting professor at Ateneo di Zamboanga University in the Philippines. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're tuned in to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, Phyllis Noel Rodriguez, visiting professor at Ateneo di Zamboanga University in the Philippines. Mm. Yeah, and we're going to, I guess, continue the conversation on Zamboanga, I think, mm-hmm. in the area of your research, right? Your master's thesis, uh, right? It was my master's thesis. Yeah, yeah master's thesis, yes, right? Yeah, yes, okay. Yes. Which you're returning to, and you left us with a very indelible <laughs> image of uh, how uh, a missionary would have 
to find ways to sort of like translate foreign concepts into something that can be relatable on a local level. Yeah? How, how does this sort of like experience then uh, inform the subsequent work that you would do in Zamboanga and the interest in sort of like looking at Zamboanga history? Originally, I mean, in my master's thesis, and mm. thankfully, I didn't get it published. Okay. Uh, I just published one part of it, which was on the town building process of the... Because the sources that I used then were the Jesuit letters. So the Jesuits came, and especially in the 19th century, after they were expulsed from the Philippines in mm-hmm. 1768. They returned in 1865. And when they returned, there was a trigger again, right, to bring these people into townships. Mm. And whenever like they encountered people, they related whatever took place mm-hmm. to their superiors back in Rome. And so you have all these letters okay. to their superiors. So it was like an basically that anthropological okay. um, reconstruction of the history yes yes so they would um, relate for example whom they met um, what they wore the mm. textiles that were there and um, the way the architecture of their houses the rituals mm. so it was like an anthropological okay. essay of uh, right. of the peoples that they encountered I imagine that would have been a very rich account already but on but, but, <laughs> but <yes. laughs> what else have you discovered? But, uh, that's why I say thankfully <laughs> only uh, that part of it really was, was published in, in journals. But recently, like actually just, just this year, uh-huh. I've gone back to it and I've realized that my being here mm-hmm. in Malaysia, we just arrived like uh, four years ago. I mean, came back after retirement. Mm -hmm. And so uh, being in Malaysia has broadened uh, my, what you call, uh, historical imagination Mm -hmm. of how to look into uh, history, urban history, and particularly that of Zamboanga. Because one cannot speak of it devoid of uh, histories of other places, and the emergence of the city is actually tied to histories of places around it. Mm-hmm. And here I see that, you know, we are so used to talking about nation states yeah. as though we live separate from each other. When, for example, Saba is so much nearer to Zamboanga yeah. than Zamboanga is to Manila. Right. And so, but but in the mindsets of people, it's as though, you know, Malaysia is so far away. Right. It's so separate when actually it's just a boat ride away. It's yeah. just there. It's right. just, <laughs> it's so close. Right. And so, uh, for me, being here in Malaysia has broadened my way of looking at things and looking at how we are all really so much interconnected. Mm. And so, like, um, most people, like, friends who would come and visit would always be surprised. Oh, you're, you know, uh, you know certain um, Malay words. (laughs) Yeah, because those Malay words are also, like, Visayan words or also Tagalog (laughs) words. I mean, they're, they're, it's so, 
it's so similar precisely because uh-huh. historically, and you know, he, we were all related. It's interconnected. Right. Mm. And this has never been made aware publicly in the Philippines. I guess here, sensing what you're also saying is that there are limitations to how we have been taught history, right? So the bad way in which Malaysians teach history actually made you aware of how it's creating all these sort of like false barriers. Uh, and that it's sort of like shared connection is a lot more interesting to sort of like discover uh, for you. Shared connections right. and that... Um, or that there are coordinates that you can sort of like uh, link different territories together uh, that would defy the easy sort of like nation-state kind of like framework. Uh, is it right? Uh, for me, it's always um, just remove the... The barriers, the mm. the nation state barriers, and y- 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 you'll see, you know, this this yeah. connections really not only in terms of language, in terms of culture, mm-hmm. it's in terms of history itself. It's right. like, oh, when you study Malacca, it's as if Malacca is so separate from from what happened in the Philippines when actually. If you look at Malaccan structure and and the way even before the Portuguese came, there was an entire group of what they call the Luzones. Mm. So traders were already here, right? Mm. Mm. So let's peel away Philippines. Let's peel away Malaysia uh, from Mm. our sort of like islands. Exactly. What do we see now in Zamboanga? <laughs> well, it has emerged as a, a uh, culture of its own, right? Yeah. And and the people there are made up of actually a mix. It's it's halo halo, right? It's, it's halo halo. Okay, it's, it's like the ice, <laughs> it's like ice It's like ice it's, it's, it's a mix, <laughs> and yet and so I would always say, actually, we're all related to each other. Uh-huh. You know, it's important, I think, to look at history and culture and see how historically there is that. For example, uh, now, you know, 1519 was the journey when, uh, the the start of Magellan's journey, and they called it the first circumnavigation of the world Mm. in 1521 when they reached uh, Cebu. Mm -hmm. But, little do people know that Magellan was in Malacca, right? Right. Uh, But, it's as if, like, it's his first time in Asia. It's his first right. time. It's like, no, he was already... Because exa- it's exactly that. We talk about Malaysian history and we separate that from uh, Filipino Philippine history. history. Yeah. Right. Or yeah. from Indonesian history. Mm. When actually... <laughs> right. You know, there's so much effort to sort of, like, talk about a Southeast Asian history. And it's been an ongoing project <laughs> since, like, you know, the 60s at least, uh-huh. right? Or 50s. Mm-hmm. Really, the beginnings of, were, were really from the 50s. Uh, why do you think we haven't been so successful in really seeing more of these sort of connections? Or uh, trying to sort of, like, bring together, you know, uh, all these disparate sort of, like... Mm. Uh, Connection. Is, it, is it possible also because we're always trying to protect our boundaries, our mm. yeah. lines mm. of defense? Right. It's like, oh, this one is mine, this part is mine, and right. separate from yours, <laughs> and therefore we have to, you know, cut and, that out. And, and that plays out like most tellingly <laughs> in like the culture wars, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're too preoccupied with our own, I think, boundaries, right? Our yeah, own space. Yeah, mm. yeah. 
Right. <laughs> and that's why I really like James Warren's work mm-hmm. on the Sulu zone mm. because that's precisely why he used the word zone yeah. and not you know Sulu as geographically just the the island mm. but he uses the zone to refer to how trading and even um European traders saw that you know the 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 link and the the necessity to relate to the Sulu Sultanate, for example, in terms of trade. So, how is the word zone different from, say, the word region? Uh, how how did uh, someone like James Warren how he how did he use it differently? I'm is it a lot more porous in the sense that it encompasses sort of like area that are always shifting, uh, that allows for over time changes to where this sort of light zone could encompass territories this zone yeah because encompass. in terms of zone yeah. he, he really went everywhere right yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you uh, know all the way up to Penang <laughs> yeah all the way up to Penang <laughs> like oh you know the raiders went all the way up to Penang to uh, well yeah. they wanted to to raid Penang and Actually, yeah, kidnap states, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and even the teen miners in where was that Perak, Perak. right? Uh, uh, they came to take away suddenly no more teen miners in Perak because <laughs> they were all taken already as slaves, you know, into uh, the Sulu zone. No. Uh. But uh, what's interesting there is um, he lifts that nation, nation state borders mm. when he discusses. Uh, Sulu history, mm-hmm. and he shows how, for for this, um, f- it, when the, the Sama Balangingi Ranun, for example, started raiding, it was not only in the Visayas or or Luzon or in what is now called the Philippine Islands, but they raided everywhere, right. all the way up, yes, to Penang. Mm. But more than just the nation, like deconstructing the nation, it also has huge implication of how we understand this idea of ethnicity, right, as an identity marker. Uh, uh, can you sort of tell us more about that? I mean, well, I think for James Warren, he says something very interesting about uh, the way Sama Balanini as a sort of like ethnicity really only came into being principally because of modernity because of the slave reading sort of like practices uh, on some level, right? Uh, I think he's not saying that it didn't exist before, but he's saying that there's a process in which it consolidated uh, on many levels. The uh, Sama Balangini uh, and the, even the, the Sulu, the Taosug, the Taosug, right? right? Like when you say you're Taosug, yeah. what, the, what, does what does that it really mean? mean? Yeah. Because uh, they raided people by the thousands, mm. I mean, year after year, right. especially these... in the 18th century with the rise of the Sulu Sultanate mm. due to, of course, the need for um, but nice, right? yeah. Chinese, Chinese goods, yeah, uh, Chinese goods, goods, goods that uh, the British could sell to China. Uh, to China. Mm. I mean, this is uh, James, Warren, James Warren's theory, right? I right. mean, work right, right, in right. his uh, Sulu Zone book. Mm. And through the whole process of you know capturing all these slaves, the slave population was uh, also gradually assimilated. And, and to some of the slaves the didn't, didn't remain slaves. Right. And they, they became the Nakodas or they became the, the raiders themselves. Mm-hmm. So they knew where to raid because they were from whatever region they were taken from. Mm-hmm. And with this, I think the whole concept also of uh, slavery is very different. It's 
compared to the Western concept of slave. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a South uh, uh, um, Southeast Asian uh, concept, which is very different uh, mm-hmm. from the Western concept. But here, particularly, you have examples of how people who were taken in do not remain as chattel slaves. Right. You know, sometimes they emerge as secretaries. They mm. write the letters, for example, mm. of the, or they 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 become, of course, some of them the um, concubines or wives or many many different roles that they play, mm. and so slowly mm-hmm. they become as well um, tausugs or sama balangingi, depending. So Zamboanga sits, where does Zamboanga sits within this world? Uh, it is within the Sulu zone. It interacts with it. How does it sort of then shape Zamboanga's sort of like, you know, identity on some level? Uh, so how does this history, this change that's happening in the early modern period then inform? Well, the Zamboanga? fort was, was built precisely mm. to stop the raiding, right? Mm. So the Spaniards came. So it is the the Spanish zone. Right. It is them, and actually, they also traded with the. <laughs> I mean, they would try to stop the the raiding, uh-huh. but they were so, they were also like. You need a spice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were also trading with, with them, and so and even Manila was trading with the Sulu zone. But anyway, so Zamboanga was the frontier town for the Spaniards. Mm. This was uh, their fort and their people, and people who wanted to be protected, for example, from raids or who escaped from from being slaves, like would, would live in, in Zamboanga and stay there. And some of them even said that it was like a second type of slavery. Right. It was worse off than being a slave in Sulu. They should have <laughs> remained in Sulu uh, because they they were treated as such and wow. you know made to work uh, in in different fields. But so Zamboanga was um, growing in the sense that it had many different worlds. For example, you know and. Sometimes they would interact with each other, and sometimes, you know, they were. Uh, you had towns that were so far away from the center that it was like they didn't look at themselves as part of, for example, the the fort itself. Mm. So, for example, now that I was speaking about the Sulu zone in the nineteenth century, but uh, when the Spaniards. Um, let go of the... I mean, when the Americans came and took over from the Spaniards Mm -hmm. because we were sold off. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, the Spaniards came and uh, Zamboanga became like the capital for the Americans as Ah. well. And uh, recently, I was reading letters of wives of the American soldiers who were based in Zamboanga. And based on the letters, you could see that they lived in a world of their own, mm. you know, separate from, you know, and this was the 1920s already, in okay. 1930s, and still they were talking about, oh, the natives. Right. And, like, oh. and one was talking even about how they went to the movie house mm. and there was a space designated just for them, wow, wow. for the Americans, right. a separate from... Mm. You know the the locals, the natives. Mm. 
So where is your current project leading you now that you're not just interested in the narrative of uh, uh, those who are in power or those who had control of, like, you know, uh, the written word, right? Uh, <laughs> as it were, uh, uh, how, how are you sort of like planning to sort of like tell these other sort of like stories to complicate our understanding of this site? So complicated, yeah, right? I mean, but it's exciting because, uh, you know, we're entering a territory that's so unfamiliar to us only because our previous understanding of history didn't prepare us to engage this subject, right? To see the world this way. Because in history, we always want a story, right? A yeah. narrative. And the narrative with a beginning and an end. Right. And so... And that is what I, I did before, right? Uh-huh. The beginning of the town, oh, the fort was there. And from uh-huh. the fort, you know, the, the city emerged. Uh-huh. And yet suddenly there's other complications yeah. <laughs> or other things that come into the story. Like, oh, you know, the relation with the Sulu zone, mm. for example. The relation, for example, with the Subanan who were the earliest peoples who were there. And actually, the Subanan have their own story to tell, Mm. of how it all started. Okay. Like if uh, there was this um, anthropologist, Christy, who mm. went and he interviewed, and it's written down, uh, he interviewed a headman of uh, one of the, the Subanan, and, and, and he related, you know, what their history was mm. and how they related to, for example, other peoples, quote-unquote, mm. and even how they related with the Spaniards. Mm. So they have their own story to tell. So allowing all these stories to coexist really gives you a sense that within this coexistence, there's also interaction that's been happening, that's been taking place for a very long time. Yes. Right? Uh, rather than seeing them as entirely what Furnival would call a plural society, where cl- communities live next side by side, but actually never really sort of interact or talk to each other, or at least on a very surface level. And I think uh, a lot of scholars are trying to uh, disprove uh, his concept of the plural society now, right? Precisely because uh, even though the interaction might be very surface or very superficial. In fact, actually, if you dig a bit deeper, the sort of like uh, channels of communications actually runs a lot deeper than what we assume. Yeah, there's a richness really precisely because of the interactions. Mm. And interactions not only in terms of trade, for example, and as though people live separately, but really interaction as in people meeting and Mm. people coming together and on many, many different levels. So um, now I'm starting to look into the reports, for example, of of the officials in Zamboanga and look at the archival material, archival material that says, for example, listing the population, listing the number of products and uh, stories. And so all this material like have to be put together to, to tell all these varied histories. Mm. Wow, interesting. That's a very uh, ambitious undertaking. Very uh, ambitious. I look forward to sort of like listening to what new ways you're going to sort of like tell the history of the city. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We're looking forward to it. But now I'm, uh, what I'm doing actually is a simple one and I hope to finish it uh, by by next year, which is like a, a photograph history in the 1900s. Okay, great. Collaborating with 
someone else who collects photographs and postcards. Awesome. <laughs> I always like a good photo book. Visuals, yeah. <laughs> yes, visual always sort of like, you know, it works well with me. Mm. <laughs> okay, thank you. you. Uh, thank you very much, Phyllis. Yeah, you just heard from Phyllis Noel Rodriguez, visiting professor at Ateneo di Zamboanga University in the Philippines. She's joined by Simon Soon and we've been talking about Zamboanga, right? Yes. Yeah, share your thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio or you can send us an email to nightschool at bfm.my. You can always also follow us on Facebook, look for BFM Night School there. Don't forget to also download the BFM app, which you can get on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Uh, thanks once again, Phyllis Noel Rodriguez and also Simon Soon. Thank you. I'm Hanif Baharudin and you've been listening to Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.